series over the last several weeks studying verse by verse the book of Colossians in the New Testament and something that we love at Rock Hill is to study the Word of God verse by verse and we believe that all scripture is inspired uh, by God and we believe that all scripture is profitable uh, for doctrine for reproof for correction and instruction in righteousness and so uh, we like to go line by line precept upon precept and we've been doing that in this series Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. Last week, we left it off in verse 17, so we'll pick it up here in verse 18. How many of you are ready to dive into God's Word this morning? All right, eight of you. Anybody else ready to dive into God's Word this morning? Worship team, are you ready? You know, the 1130 service is special because the 1130 service is the service that the worship team sits in. So I'm looking, I'm watching to make sure that you come back in. All right, uh, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And we're going to start in verse number 18. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Most of the verses will be on the screen today as well. The Bible says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Verse 20. Children... Obey your parents in all things. And all the parents said. <laughs> children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. And not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Today, for a few minutes, I'd like to speak to this subject. Family meeting family meeting from Colossians chapter 3. Let's have a word of prayer together today and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Lord, thank you for the 8.30 and the 10 o'clock service. But God, thank you for this time at 11.30 that we can come together and we can look to your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to give me the words to say. Lord, I pray that we can be encouraged and edified in our time together. Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing in our church over the last several weeks with a new small group cycle and trunk or treat and new service schedule. And Lord, thank you for just the decisions that we've seen made and the salvations. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't uh, just get used to that. I pray that we would be excited by that and that we would recognize that that's what it's all about. Lord, I pray that we would be able to dive into your word today and truly understand how this passage applies to us. Lord, I pray that we would not be guarded in letting the word uh, penetrate our hearts and respond to it. I pray that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said this morning. Amen. The other night, my wife, Katie, and I, we were at home and we were sitting on the couch. 
and we were enjoying a relatively peaceful night together. Our children were upstairs playing, and uh, they were playing and getting along great. And uh, how many of you parents know that's a blessing when the kids are getting along great upstairs and they're just having fun? And so we were enjoying this calm moment, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was a burst of laughter, and all three kids ran downstairs very quickly, and we realized that they had discovered some face paint upstairs, and they were painting each other's faces. And I tried to get a picture of them, but they wouldn't hold still, but I did happen to get this blurry picture of my son Luke. There he is with his monster face that he came down, and he was so excited uh, to be a monster that night. And uh, there's never a dull moment uh, in our household. And sometimes when things get a little bit uh, chaotic in the house or a little bit in disarray, what I like to do is I like to call a family meeting. How many of you have ever called a family meeting in your household? Anybody like that? Like, okay, we need to have a family meeting. Growing up, my dad was the king of family meetings. He was always calling family meetings. He was like, all right, family meeting, come together. Here's the agenda. He was a, he's a pastor, so he would preach at us a little bit. You know, we'd have our own little worship service. He'd even pass an offering plate. We'd have to do the whole thing. And, uh, and uh, my dad would have these family meetings, but sometimes it's good as a family to kind of go over the agenda, to go over the schedule, to uh, remind ourselves about the responsibilities and the chores that are at hand. It's good to have a family meeting. And when we come to Colossians chapter 3, we come to this very important and paramount section of scripture that almost is parenthetical to the text at large where it seems like right in the middle, Paul inserts this text that has to do with the family. And what Paul does is says, okay, we need to have a family meeting. We need to talk about the family unit. We need to talk about the importance of what God's design is when it comes to the home. And in this chapter, Paul is going to get up close and personal. He's going to get very practical. It's like Paul wants to just walk up your driveway, into your garage, through your garage door, into your home, through your kitchen, into your living room, sits down on the couch and says, all right, we're going to have a family meeting. And we've got to talk about the importance of this. Uh, by the way, how many of you know that the home today in our culture is certainly under attack? And if you haven't realized that today, uh, we need to start looking at what is being introduced to our children through education and through the culture today and realize that the home is being distorted and, and uh, uh, wanting the enemy wants to destroy the home and redefining terms and redefining marriage and redefining gender. And, and there is this confusion surrounding uh, the home. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, faith in Jesus Christ not only changes individuals, it also changes homes. And I love Colossians chapter 3. If you are here last week, we talked about how the power of the gospel can transform us as individuals from the inside out. I'm thankful today that I was lost and on my way to hell, but Jesus Christ saved me. He redeemed me. I've been born again. I've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. That, that is how the gospel has transformed my life, but I'm thankful also that the gospel has the power to transform homes and marriages and children and reunite families. And so Paul's going to say, okay, we've got to talk about some things. We've got to have a family meeting. According to the U.S. Census, the birth rate in the United States over the last 20 years has been on the decline and has declined 17%. And so families are not having children as much as they used to. We also know that one in four U.S. children live without a father in the home. And so there is certainly a crisis of fatherlessness in our culture. And I said this in the last service, but I'm so thankful for many single parents in our church that I know that are doing a great job raising their children and the grace of God is evident upon their lives. Aren't you thankful for those parents that are doing their best to make sure that they're raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? But we have to recognize today 
that the devil wants to distort and disrupt and ultimately destroy the home. He does not like the institution that God designed and that God created. Uh, The United States has the highest rate of children living in single-parent households out of any other nation in the world. And so certainly we see that there's a problem. Certainly we see that there is uh, something somewhere that's broken. And if something is broken, it's hard to know how to fix it unless you know how it was originally intended to work. Unless you know how it was intended and how it was designed. Uh, several years ago, my wife Katie was watching the cousins, our, our kids and all of their cousins. They were swimming in a pool. And one of the cousins of our kids, they, they jumped in the pool and they didn't know how to swim. Katie saw that. And in a moment, she reacted and became a hero, jumped in the pool and saved that child and brought her out of the pool. And it was just a beautiful moment where she saved that child. And everything was great. Everything was wonderful, except for her phone that was in her pocket that also went into the pool with her. And we took that phone and we tried to fix it. And we tried all the tricks. You know, we tried to put it in a bag of rice and we tried to do all those things that didn't work. We took it to a a store, hadn't tried to fix it. They couldn't fix it. But there was one thing that I knew for certain. And that is that I could not fix that phone. Uh, I do not know how to fix that phone. I don't have the right tools necessary. I don't have the right knowledge. Uh, But most importantly, I don't know how an iPhone is intricately designed. I don't know how that works. And many people today are trying to fix the home. They're trying to build the right foundation for their home, but they don't understand how the home was originally designed to be. And what we see in scripture is that all the way back in the book of Genesis, God outlines a design as an unalterable template for the home. You don't have to read very far in scripture to find it. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Now, Adam did not have a father and a mother to leave. So why did God say that he had to leave his father and mother? Because God was establishing a precedent for the home, for the family. He was saying, this is how things should be. A man should leave his father and his mother and should cleave unto his wife, and they should be one flesh. This is God's design uh, when it comes to the family. By the way, there is freedom when we function uh, in according to a manner that God has designed. Uh, There's freedom when we function according to God's design. Uh, That's why you see this in creation. When an animal functions according to its design, there's freedom. A fish is most free when it swims. And a bird is most free when it flies. Why? Because it's functioning according to its design. And when we function according to the design that God has laid out for us, there is true freedom there. And so Genesis chapter 2, everybody with me this morning? Genesis 2 lays out this template uh, by which Jesus also confirmed and reiterated in Matthew 19. Jesus goes back and he quotes uh, the Genesis account. Paul quotes it. Paul affirms this. And here in Colossians chapter 3, we see it as well. And so what I want to do today is, if you're taking notes, I want us to see God's design in three distinct categories. Would that be all right today? Three distinct categories that we see God's design. First, I want us to see God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. Now, before we jump into the text and start unpacking these verses, I think it's important for us to realize the cultural context and setting to which Paul was writing to. Because one mistake that we make sometimes is we view Scripture and read Scripture through our Western eyes, and we can read something and be offended by it. We can read something and be confused by it and not understand what the verses mean. And we have to understand that Paul was writing to a household that was functioning in a societal norm of the day. 
in the societal norm of the day in the Roman world was that women were not treated with respect and women were not held in high regard. Children were not held in high regard. And so actually, and this is very important for us to know, the scripture and the Bible and the teachings of Jesus dramatically elevated the cultural view of women in society. And so the teaching of scripture actually helped women and children uh, beyond measure. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he says, hey, there, there is a level playing field, the ground is level at the cross. By the way, aren't you thankful today that the ground is level at the cross and the blood of Jesus has been applied and is available for all of humanity? And so the, the teachings of scripture have elevated uh, these views. Now we understand that men and women were created with equal worth, equal value, and yet different roles and functions. Uh, we see this to be true all throughout Scripture. And so Paul is going to mention marriage, and he's going to address these certain categories. And so let's dive into it today. The first, uh, uh, the first thing that he mentions is to the wives. Notice verse number 18. He says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, the word submit throughout history has been uh, miscategorized and misunderstood and misapplied. And many people have accused the Apostle Paul of being misogynistic or uh, an advocate for an authoritarian or domineering husband, when really the exact opposite is true. Uh, submission does not equal subjugation. Uh, he, he, he's he, he's not saying something that would advocate any sort of abuse or domineering relationship. In fact, uh, Daniel Aiken said the term describes a voluntary offering of oneself to another in willing support. And so this idea of submission, we learn in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.21, that the Bible says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. That submission in marriage is a two-way street, and some of life's greatest victories come by way of surrender and submission, uh, particularly in the context of marriage. By the way, I want you to know that submission is not weakness. In fact, this kind of submission and surrender demonstrates the heart of Jesus Christ, who Jesus, even though he was equal with God, became obedient unto death and took upon him the form of the servant. And Jesus demonstrated this surrender when he said, it's not my will, but thine be done. And so Jesus demonstrated this for us perfectly. I remember when I was in junior high, I really got into a new hobby and I really was interested in paintballing. Anybody ever go paintballing in here today? And I was really into paintballing. I'm kind of embarrassed at how much I was into paintballing, but I really liked it. And when I was in junior high, I remember going out for one of the first times and I saw one of my friends who was very good at paintball, who played paintball a lot, and uh, he was playing. I was watching him from the sideline, and he ran across the field, and he found someone that was hiding in the back of the field, and he pointed his paintball gun at him, and he said, surrender! And that person that was hiding put their gun up in the air to signify uh, surrender. And uh, he walked off the course and he was out of the game. And I thought when I saw that, that was awesome. <laughs> like, I need to try that. I really want to surrender someone. And, uh, and I just remember thinking that was so cool. So a couple weeks later, I was playing paintball with some of my friends. My brother, Larry, who's preached here at Rock Hill, uh, he was playing paintball on the other team. And he was across from me. And we were playing in this game. And my paintball gun uh, ran out of paintballs. And I thought, this is not good. But maybe, 
this is my chance. This is my opportunity to surrender someone. And it's going to be the greatest bluff of all time. I'm going to go and say surrender, and I'm going to get someone out. And so that's what my plan was. And so I saw my brother uh, across the way, and I was going to time it to when he wasn't shooting at me. And so as soon as I heard there was a moment of quiet, I jumped up. I sprinted to the other side of the field. I ran to my brother, and I pointed my paintball gun at him, and I said, surrender. And my brother looked at me and he shot me about eight times from point blank range. And he did not surrender and he just shot me and it hurt so bad and I was bruised all over. I learned something. That in our human nature, we don't like to surrender. We don't like to submit. We don't like to yield. But here's what you need to know today in that some of life's greatest victories come by way of surrender, come by way of submission when we say it's not about my will, but thine be done. And so Paul's saying if you want to experience victory in your marriage, learn this idea of mutual submission. Learn this voluntary yielding of oneself. And Paul said this is what we need to do. Tim Keller said this, whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or a wife in marriage. He says in verse 18, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And so in other words, why do we do what we do? Why do you do this? He says, ultimately, your love for the Lord drives you to this kind of surrender. And so uh, he's addressing the wives, but then he goes on and he addresses the husbands. Notice verse number 19. Everybody still with me today? He says in verse 19, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. It's interesting in Ephesians, there's a parallel passage where Paul talks about marriage. And in Ephesians chapter 5, there's, there's 41 Greek words that he uses to address the wives. But then when he addresses the husbands, there's 116 Greek words that he uses to address the husbands. He knows there's a lot that we need to learn and take in. And so he's going he's gonna to really lean in and focus on the husbands. And he says, husbands, love your wives. Now, this kind of love is not a romantic type of love. In fact, one commentator, Curtis Vaughn, he said, agapeo, the word for love here in this text, does not denote affection or romantic attachment. It rather denotes caring love, a deliberate attitude of mind that concerns itself with the well-being of the one love. This is a sacrificial and selfless love. How do we know that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. This is a sacrificial and selfless type of love. By the way, uh, neither one of these responsibilities here in Colossians chapter 3 are contingent upon the other party fulfilling their responsibility. If you think that you will be perpetually disappointed in marriage, you'll be perpetually disappointed in life. Like, it does not say, wives, submit unto your own husbands when they are sacrificially loving you. And it doesn't say, husbands, love your wives sacrificially and selflessly when your wife is showing honor to you. There has to be this this mindset that says, I'm going to live like Jesus, and if I'm going to live like Jesus, I have to love like Jesus. And if I'm going to love like Jesus, that means loving someone even when I think they're undeserving. Even if I don't think that they deserve it, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to yield and demonstrate that kind of love. I remember when I was in college, I read the book, uh, The Five Love Languages. How many of you have ever read that book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages? He talks about how we have different love languages and we receive and communicate love in different ways. And often what we do is we communicate love in a way that we want to receive it, right? We're really good at that. It's like if if I was going to celebrate Christmas with Katie and I said, Katie, I love you so much 
That's why I got us Laker tickets, and we're going to go to a Laker game together for Christmas. That would be me communicating love in a way that I want to receive it. Hint, hint. Okay, Christmas is coming up. And, uh, and, uh, or for her birthday, if I said, hey, for your birthday, I got you a round of golf. We're going to go golfing. Okay, that would be communicating love in a way that I want to receive it. And the premise of the book is that we ought to learn the love language of our spouse and then start speaking that language fluently and giving love in a way that our spouse needs to receive love. And so this is what Paul is saying when he says, husbands, love sacrificially, selflessly uh, your spouse. He says in verse 19, love your wives and be not bitter against them. The word bitter there is the Greek word pikrino, to make someone bitter or to exasperate. And so he's saying, treat your spouse gently with compassion. Don't exasperate them. Don't make them exhausted by your constant uh, nagging or constant cruel uh, vernacular. He's saying, be gentle with your spouse. And so this is God's design for marriage. But then we're going to transition. And now we're going to talk about God's design for parents. All right, everybody still with me today? So God's design for marriage. Now God's design for parents. Now, by the way, today, if you, even if you are not married, even if you don't have children, it's so important that we understand God's design in these matters, no matter what your relational status is. Because someone in the world today, someone at work is going to ask you uh, what you believe about these things, and it's important, it's important to not just go on opinion or what you think, but here's actually what the Bible says. And so it's so important that we know this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my son Luke, he was at school, and he's in second grade, and they had a questionnaire that they had him fill out. And it was kind of like an about me form and asked him different questions. And one of the questions uh, on the form was, um, um, tell us something fun about yourself. And I can't remember exactly what he put, but he put something like, I play baseball. And one of the questions was, what is the most interesting thing about you? And to that question, Luke wrote the answer, my sister. What is the most interesting thing about you? And he put, my sister. And Kate and I thought about that and we thought, why did he write that? That's, that's sad. Why would he say the most interesting thing about himself is his sister? And later that day, Luke came home from school and he had that paper and he said, mom, look, I answered this question. What is the most irritating thing about you? I put my sister. He thought it said the most irritating thing. And he thought the most irritating thing about me is definitely my sister. And uh, that's, what, that's what he wrote down. You know, being a parent is fun. Being a parent is certainly a privilege. It's a weighty calling. And I want us to understand before we dive into Paul's instruction for parents, again, that the setting and the context to which Paul was writing. Because being a parent in the Roman world was far different than perhaps we might think of a good parent in our society and culture today. In ancient Rome, fathers held absolute power of control in their homes. There was something called the patria potestis, and in Latin, it meant the power of a father. And because of this, Patria Potestis, the power of the father, a father could condemn his child to death even if he wanted to. And so this was the Roman world. This was a harsh and cruel reality that the, power had, the father had this kind of uh, unbridled power. Again, this is why Hebrew culture infiltrated society and the teachings of Jesus dramatically improved society as a whole because the Bible says in Psalm 127 verse 3, lo, children are an heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Can I just remind you today that children are not a burden, they are a blessing from God Almighty. And we have to recognize that the Bible says in Psalm 127 that children are arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior and it's our job as parents to shape those arrows and to sharpen those arrows and ultimately 
ultimately aim those arrows at the right target. And the right target is not good grades. It's not sports. It's not school. Hey, the right target is the glory of God and knowing Jesus Christ, God's son. It's our responsibility to aim the arrows at the right target. And so Paul is going to give some instructions as, as parents that we have to carry out to our children. Now, you might think, well, Matt, what do you know about raising kids? You still have young kids, and, and uh, you haven't gone through everything that I've gone through. And I would say you're correct, but it's a good thing that I'm just preaching what the Bible has to say and not what I have to say, because what the Bible has to say is more important than what I think anyways. And so we're just going to go ahead and look at Colossians chapter 3 and see what Paul has to say to parents. Are you with me today? First, he says this, children need exhortation. They need exhortation. Notice it in verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, again, the context here, he's talking to children that are under the supervision of their parents, children that are still in the home. And he says, children, obey your parents. There are some things that children need to be instructed in. There are some things that children need to be taught. And the expectation is that a child would follow through in obedience. And so there has to be some exhortation. Uh, By the way, the word exhortation means to call to one side. And I like this picture because as parents, we are to call our children to our side, not making them carbon copies, not making them imitate us in every way, but recognizing that we want to bring the same biblical convictions that we've come to and have our children established in those. And so uh, to exhort, to bring to one side. Deuteronomy 6 verse 7 says this, and thou shalt teach them diligently. Again, the instruction here is about God's truth to children. Teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. In other words, the transfer of truth to the next generation is a way of life. We do this constantly. Please don't think that the responsibility to teach your children the truth of the gospel is primarily the church. Don't think that the primary responsibility to teach the gospel is the Christian school. No, the primary responsibility is that of the parent. Now, now the church can come alongside to help assist, and a Christian school can come alongside uh, to help assist, but the primary responsibility is that of the parent to transfer the truth to the next generation, teaching our kids what the gospel is, teaching our kids who Jesus Christ is, teaching our children why the Bible is inspired and why we trust the Bible, and teaching our children the value of walking in obedience. Susanna Wesley said this, the child that never learns to obey his parents in the home will not obey God or man out of the home. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there is certainly, there is certainly an authority struggle in our culture today. And there are children and adults that do not understand Romans chapter 13, the idea of submitting to the authorities that be. Remember, the word authority has the word author in it, and God is the author of all authority. And so we have to understand that we have been called to submit uh, to those authorities as, as good citizens. Now, we also recognize that we ought to obey God rather than men. And so we have to have this balance here and this, this, this wisdom when it comes to this subject. But children need uh, exhortation. But then secondly, children need encouragement. Notice it in verse 21. He says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And so here he's talking about a domineering home that's all about the rules, all about the regulations. It's, it's the authoritarian home that there's no joy. Uh, it's all anger, and it's do the rules, do this, obey, submit here. Now, John Newton, he talked about his, 
his relationship with his father. And John Newton was the one that wrote Amazing Grace, perhaps the most famous hymn that we are aware of. And John Newton said this, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. He was talking about how he didn't receive the communication of love from his father. Martin Luther talked about this. Martin Luther had a father that was very harsh and very severe. And Martin Luther talked about how it was difficult for him to pray the Lord's Prayer because the first two words were, our father. And for him, father represented that harshness, that, that severity. Which, by the way, when we are harsh and severe in our homes, that can unintentionally project the wrong expectation about God, that he is just harsh and that he's just out to get us. And, and when we mess up, there's a lightning bolt in heaven that's going to come down on us. And we have to be very careful about the message that we're sending. This is why Martin Luther said this, spare the rod and spoil the child. It's true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he does well. Can I encourage you as parents today that it is our responsibility to live out the gospel in our homes and that we need to show our children that they are loved and valued, not simply when they're obeying, but they are loved and valued because of who they are. Obedience is not a prerequisite for parental love. Aren't you thankful that obedience is not a prerequisite for divine love? that he loved us, that he, we love him because he first loved us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have to show our children how much they are loved and valued. Now, when it comes to verse 21 and verse number 20, there has to be a balance here. Is everybody still with me today? There has to be a balance here in verse 20 and 21, because if you favor verse number 20 in isolation— that is going to lead to a domineering household with not a lot of joy, and it's just about the rules and regulations, and it's going to promote children to wrath and anger. If you favor verse number 21, that could lead to permissive parenting. We're like, I just don't want to discourage them, and I'm just going to kind of let my kids uh, make their own decisions. I'm going to kind of let them just make their own mistakes and figure things out uh, on their own, and I'm just going to kind of uh, individual uh, rights, and, and that we can take a step back and also do more harm than good. Uh, did you know that one of the best things that you can do, for example, if you have teenagers, is to say, you know what, tonight, I know you don't feel like it, but you are going to youth group. I know that you have homework to do. I know there's other things that, that have to be done, but uh, we are not primarily concerned with simply a good report card. What good is it if you have a good report card, but you hate church and you hate God and you don't want nothing to do with him? And so we have to recognize what will really matter in all of eternity. And so there are some times when we have to recognize there's a healthy balance here between verse 20 and verse 21. Children need exhortation, but they also need encouragement. I'm thankful that Katie, when she was growing up, she played soccer and she was in uh, soccer in junior high and high school. She played select soccer. They were constantly going to tournaments, constantly playing in, in uh, different leagues. Uh, but there was, one, uh, there was one guideline that her parents introduced to her when she was playing soccer, and that was if there's a game on Sunday, we're not going to go to that game. We're not going to sacrifice the house of God. The Bible says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're going to prioritize and teach our kids what really matters. And yes, you can be in sports. And yes, you can be in as much sports as you want. But when it comes to those Sunday games, you're going to stay home. And, uh, and that's exactly what, what Katie did. And uh, it's because of that and through that season that she decided to surrender and to go to Bible college. And because she went to Bible college, she met me. And she's so grateful that she met me. And so she's so grateful about that decision, I think. And so... Um, it's so important that we recognize the value of establishing biblical convictions and having the balance of verse 20 and verse 21. They need, children need exhortation. They need 
encouragement. Now, this brings us to our last thought today. Do you have one more point in you this morning? I want us to see God's design in closing for servants. Now, whether you are married or not, whether you have kids or not, whatever your relational status is, the reality is we are all called to be servants for Jesus Christ. All of us are serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You, you're all, you can't serve nothing. You can't say, well, I'm not going to serve uh, Jesus. Everybody serves something. You can serve your sin and be enslaved to it. You can serve yourself and your own desires and what you want to do. Uh, or uh, you can decide, I'm going to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I love many of the major prominent characters in the New Testament that describe themselves as a servant. I like that Paul said a servant of Jesus Christ when he introduced his letters. I like that James, the brother of Jesus, introduced his letter to the church at Jerusalem. And he says, James, a servant of Jesus Christ. If I was James and I was the brother of Jesus, I'd probably want to throw that little detail in there at the beginning just to kind of put a little respect on my name, right? But James does not do that. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul's going to do in these uh, concluding verses is he's going to talk about our calling to serve Jesus, but he's also going to mention uh, the slavery that was evident and rampant in the Roman culture. And they were living with this uh, Roman slavery, and Paul was going to give some practical instructions on this and share his uh, thoughts on this. And so notice verse number 22, and we'll close out these verses together this morning. Verse 22, he says this, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And so slavery in the first century was not like we might think of slavery today. It was extremely common and widespread. Uh, many historians say that you were more likely to meet a slave in the Roman Empire than you were to meet a Roman citizen. And so because of this, many, uh, uh, many oftentimes, this slavery was not even based on race. It was something that was just kind of a culturally accepted way of life. Curtis Vaughn, one commentator, said more than half the people seen on the streets of the great cities of Roman world were slaves. And this was the status of the majority of professional people, such as teachers and doctors, as well as that of menials and craftsmen, talking about how this was something that was widespread in the Roman Empire. Now, as followers of Jesus today, we recognize that all men and women were created equal in the image of God. Do you believe that today? And if we believe that all men and women were created equally in the image of God, then we should be the foremost champions of ending any kind of slavery, discrimination, or human trafficking today. Because again, the ground is level at the cross, and the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed for all of humanity. And so Paul was uh, going to address this because this was something that was common in the culture of the day. By the way, I think it's interesting that the early church did not let any sort of governmental or social issue distract them from their primary mandate to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not let any sort of secondary issue come in and distract them from their calling to preach about the blood of Jesus and to preach about the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because they understood, the apostles understood, that the greatest vehicle for life transformation is not the government. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the gospel. And when the good news of the gospel can permeate your life and your soul, you will truly be transformed and changed from the inside out. The power is in the gospel. And we ought to start living and believing like that were to be true, that the power is not in us or some man-made institution. The power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so this is what Paul is emphasizing here as he addresses this cultural topic. Now, he says this in verse number 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service. Now, again, many commentators say that this can be applied to an employer-employee relationship. And he says, uh, not with eye service. There, he's talking about integrity. Don't just do the right thing because you think someone's watching. As men pleasers, there ought to be some sincerity. Uh, you're, you're doing this out of an authentic heart. And then he says, in singleness of heart, that speaks to tenacity. You have a singleness, this, this passion of heart. You're giving it everything that you have. Verse number 23, he says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And we talked about that last week, how whatever it is that you do, uh, do it with all your heart for the Lord. Put your whole heart and soul into it, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And so here he brings it home for all of us, and he says all of us today are serving Jesus Christ. We are all servants of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he says serving Jesus is always worth it. He says there is a reward of the inheritance. When you set out to serve Jesus with your life, uh, that is the greatest decision that you can make. It's always worth it to serve Jesus. I remember when I was in youth group uh, growing up, there was a youth activity that, uh, that we did, and the youth activity was called Where's Waldo? And this activity was taking all the teenagers, and we would go to the mall, and all the youth workers and the youth pastors, they would all dress up in a disguise, and the teenagers had to try to find all the youth workers in the, in the mall. And so they brought these buses in, hundreds of teenagers. We got out, and we're scouring the mall trying to find the youth leaders. And I remember it was very difficult for us to find our head youth pastor. We were finding a lot of the youth workers, but we couldn't find the head youth pastor. And eventually, towards the end of the day, we finally found him. And he was inside of a Jamba Juice in the mall, and he had convinced the Jamba Juice workers to let him wear an outfit and to help them serve Jamba Juice all day. And so he was just back there working at Jamba Juice. And whenever a teenager found him, he would give them a Jamba Juice. He would give them that reward. And I love the verse in Scripture that talks about God that says, He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. When you pursue God with your life, when you seek after, those that seek me early will, shall find me. When you seek after God, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's always worth it to serve Jesus. He says in verse 20, 25, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. In other words, there will be accountability Verse number one of chapter four, masters give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Here he's talking to anyone in authority. He's saying, make sure that you're being fair and equitable. Make sure that you are being just, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, bringing us full circle, recognizing that we all serve our master, Jesus Christ. We all bow to the name of Jesus Christ. If you want to transform your home, if you want to transform your marriage, learn to be a servant. Learn to serve, learn to yield, learn to be selfless. The Bible says in Romans 12 that this is our reasonable service. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary who inspired generations with her testimony, with her writing. And I like how she described her home. She said, I grew up in a very strong Christian home in Philadelphia where both parents were what I call seven-day-a-week kind of Christians. And I like that description, that it's not just something on Sunday or something at a small group. It's, it's a lifestyle. 
It's every day of the week we worship Jesus. On their, above their doorpost was this sign in Elizabeth Elliot's home that said this, Christ is the head of this home, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. What was she saying? Christ is the center of this home. What is the message of, of Colossians? Put Christ at the center of your life. When you put Christ at the center of your home, there will be joy, there will be peace, there will be harmony. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.